thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some tough topics. One of the shows that we seem to revisit repeatedly is the problem with family courts, especially with child custody. Researcher after researcher from Dr. Daniel Saunders to uh, Dr. Joan Meyer, who was on our show a few months ago to, to reveal and talk about her latest study, all of these studies indicate that there's a huge problem with family courts and custody and intimate partner violence. Abusers are able to gain custody, full custody of their children. And it's not rare, despite what you hear. You will often hear men complain that the courts are prejudiced against men. But in fact, if you're an abusive man, it appears that just the opposite is the case. And we've had different people on the show. We've had Dr. Karen Huffer talking about her approach to try and remedy the situation. We've had Barry Goldstein and a few others talking about legislation that might help the situation. But today, we're going to talk about a little bit of a different approach. And the people that I have as my guests today are Cindy. Cindy, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you for having us, Heather. And we have Pat. Pat, are you there? Uh, yes. And again, uh, thank you so much for having us. Okay, great. And Damon. Right on the line. Okay. Glad to be here. All right, great. Uh, Cindy Dumas is a master, has an MA degree, and she is executive director of the Women's Coalition. And the website for that is womenscoalitioninternational.org. They also have a Facebook page. And, Pat, um, I'm looking desperately for your um, bio here, and I'm not finding it. Can you introduce yourself and tell us how you are a part of this particular uh, situation? Uh, just very briefly, I was uh, 41 and a half years as an attorney, and I was disbarred by the State Bar of California involving three trying to regain custody of her children. The client did not complain, but the batterers did, and the bar upheld um, what the batterers had to say about me. In other words, the opposing people. Uh, I have, uh, I would say, significant bona fides. I argued and helped to win the first sexual harassment case in the U.S. Supreme Court, which I had from, um, uh, uh, from the uh, pretrial through the trial, I reversed the judgment of dismissal in the D.C. Circuit in 2005 and then um, argued the case in the U.S. Supreme Court in 2006. And I've won other significant women's cases that are reported, which means that um, civil rights plaintiffs, that is people who are advocating the same claim that I did and won a reported case, can cite my case as precedent. And, um, so I was also working in family law in California on and off uh, for 20 years in the area of domestic violence and child custody and realized, I think, at the same time that Cindy and Damon did, we got to change the code and, and uh, make it a jury trial, restrict um, judicial discretion as much as possible, and then eliminate all the middle people who are making tons of money off abused children. 
And it does kind of come down to that, doesn't it? I'm often staggered by how many people can end up being involved. You've got the courts, you've got guardians ad litem. Sometimes there's more than one per case. You've got psychologists on his side and her side, you got or her side and her side, or his side and his side, however it shakes out. You've got, um, uh, I, I mean, the ancillary people that are involved are, are, is sometimes just staggering. Right. And, of course, yeah. all those people, uh, you know, translate to costs. And um, sometimes it's not uncommon for people to completely run out of money. I mean, even people who started out fairly wealthy, they just run yeah. out of money during this whole process. Well, um, Pat, Barry, thank you very much uh, for introducing yourself. And then my third guest is Damon. And Damon, is your last name the same as your mom's? Uh, it is now, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Damon I, I had Dumas. it changed a few years back. So, yes, Damon okay. Dumas. All right. And uh, Damon has a, a dual role in our conversation. He is the communications director for the Women's Coalition, He is also a victim of some of these uh, uh, family court decisions. And you can, I I welcome any conversation and insight you can give us from either aspect of your role here today, Damon. Thank you for joining us. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me. Okay. All right. Enough of the introduction. Let's talk about what the problem is. I gave a little bit in the introduction, but Cindy, what do you see as the real problem that's going on here? Well, yes, as you started to say, I have a little different perspective than the others in the um, protective parent movement. Uh, I see I have a little bit broader perspective, and that is this isn't just about abuse cases or domestic violence cases. The, the crisis is actually a custody crisis, and uh, what is happening is that judges are taking kids away from primary nurturing mothers and they are granting custody, joint or sole custody, to not only abusive men, but also to men who have self-serving motives, such as trying to get out of child support or wanting to get revenge or to maintain control in the family. So it's a much broader picture than just an abuse picture as we see it. Yeah. Well, and so you're saying that this situation arises in all of these custody cases, not just the ones that some of the studies show where the um, um, person who's contesting custody happens to be also have, have documented history of, of abuse. You're saying that it's happening in general when it comes to custody. Yes, that's exactly what okay. I'm saying. And, and that speaks to, the, to a different cause of the crisis. So that's why I'm hoping to help make clear today how it is uh, we're identifying the crisis a little differently than it has been before, and that leads us to a different solution. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so right. um, to, just uh, to clarify even what a crisis is, what we mean by crisis is that this is something that is happening in epidemic numbers. So it's not just a case here and there or cases, few hundred few thousand. This is tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, actually millions of cases all over the world where this is happening. And the other thing that makes it a crisis is that it is causing 
uh, devastation to women and children. You talked a little bit about the financial devastation. Women are being bankrupted because of legal costs and fees and, um, you know, inability to work after being traumatized. It's causing women and children to be severely traumatized. Uh, I know many, many women who suffer from major depressive episodes, chronic anxiety, suicidal ideation, even completed suicides. We have many cases of children and mothers who have despaired to the point of suicide. And one mother not too long ago just dropped dead in family court right when the uh, judge took custody away from her. So it is, it is a true crisis. It is, we're not just using that word loosely. It really is a crisis. Mm -hmm. Oh, and not to, the other important thing that makes it a crisis is there's a lot of women going to prison. We are actually working on a case right now in Philadelphia, no, not Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania, where the mother okay. is I'm, dying I'm losing you, but I did, you took your face, face away from the phone uh, because we, we didn't hear the part about there's a case right now. Can you tell us what that case in is? Pennsylvania. Oh, sure. Okay. So, yes, there's a case right now in Pennsylvania where the mother has terminal cancer. She only has months to live, and uh, she's in prison, and the judge won't let her out, and the judge won't let her see her children before she dies. So it, it is just really a horrific uh, situation that is going on right now. Okay, I'm going to jump in here with, uh, and I'm going to play devil's advocate, because as I said in the introduction, you're going to find a lot of men who say no. Just the opposite is the case. In fact, the the courts favor the mother, and they're they're uh, they give the short end of the stick to the father, and so your what you're saying is hogwash. And then they will say that, um, well, all of these things that you're saying about uh, giving custody to men who just don't want to pay child support or who have some sort of, you know, bitter water, you can apply all of those scenarios to women who want custody as well. How do you respond to that? Um, if I can uh, step in real fast yes. here. Okay. Well, I think that um, there's a few ways to go about answering this. I, I love statistics. I'm a numbers guy. And one of the things that I like to do is say, well, this is sort of a factual question. This is a question where we can look at the statistics. Do women get custody more? Do men get custody more? And within those statistics, we can find some answers. And fathers' rights organizations, the people you're talking about, like to point to numbers saying that women in general have more custody than men do. But the problem with the numbers they generally provide is that they're not looking at contested custody cases. So those numbers right. tend yeah. to be including men who voluntarily say, yes, um, the mother should have primary custody here. When you start looking at contested custody numbers, like you see uh, Joan Meyer doing, you referenced Joan Meyer's work earlier, uh, you start having a very different picture emerge, and that picture doesn't stop uh, with non-abusive fathers in cases where there are not allegations of abuse, those numbers continue to represent. And that seems sort of logical given the historical context through which this is happening, um, is that there are 
essentially no times in history that you're going to look at in American history where you're going to say that women are the dominant class, that they are the dominant uh, power of the political system or the judicial system. Um, there's instead been systemic discrimination against women from the beginning of this country and the concept that there would be one section right here in custody courts where that suddenly flipped over and now you know, men don't have any power just seems like a strange accusation to make and one where I, I haven't seen any compelling statistics to, to make that kind of claim. So. Yeah, it, if I can weigh in, uh, Heather, uh, Joan Meyer, uh, Joan Meyer got, received the grant specifically to address the issues being raised primarily with these uh, Fathers United types. Uh, because they simply play on the typical stereotype that mom, particularly uh, with the tender years presumption that used to be in place, that mom always gets the custody. And as Damon just pointed out, what they do is they count uh, in their percentages the uh, huge number of men that just don't want to bother with custody. And consequently, it skews the whole uh, argument. It, it skews it all in their favor when in fact you have to look at the contested custody and that's precisely what Joan Meyer did. And if you look at her conclusion, as Damon just pointed out and as Cindy knows well, even where there are good enough parents on both sides, if the dad decides he wants custody, it looks like he's gonna get it. And it's even worse, of course, when abuse is alleged. In fact, when the father, uh, when the mother never says the dad did anything wrong, he's less likely to get full custody then when mom said he's beaten on me or he's molesting the kid or he's hurting the child, it's more likely when those allegations are made that, uh, that the father will get custody, even as opposed to the good father. And I believe the Sanders report bears that out. And that's what Myers is saying. I want to just add here too, that Myers really uh, uh, defines the, uh, not so much the narrative, but defines the situation that's occurring. You have the advocates for domestic violence victims or for the abused children on the one side, as well as the experts, the doctors, the, the forensic, uh, the, the psychiatrist, the doctor who examined the child, the, uh, the interviewer, and so on, all on one side. And then you have judge, father's counsel, father, minors counsel who are not witnesses saying the opposite and they win and and the child goes over to the abuser or even as cindy points out often just to a good enough dad who just decided that he wants a custody even though the mom always had the primary or was always the primary caretaker and uh you know people seem to understand it in this immigration context and i'm going to do i'm working on a brief now and i'm going to say what's new this has been going on uh, for many years in family court. Nobody's blinking an eye. Taking children, ripping them out of their mother's arms, even breastfeeding infants are forced to be taken from their mother's arms and handed over to the patriarch because the father's rights are paramount even over a breastfeeding child. That's how bad it is in family court. And I know you and I would just I've spoken with a woman who, who had a, a four-week-old infant that was breastfeeding, and she was not married to the father, but the judge yep. determined 
that that infant, that breastfeeding infant, should spend one week with dad and one week with mom. Well, there's those. And he, I, yeah, yeah, and, and that I judge mean, can be a female too. Yeah. yeah. What about that infant's, you know, ability to bond? What, you know, I don't, I don't understand what they're thinking of. But why is this happening? I mean, I'm hearing everyone talking about, you know, the courts are doing this, and from what I can see, it's a two-pronged problem. One is the courts don't trust whatever women say, um, and punish them if they say something that they don't want. I mean, it's 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 her a story we hear over and over and over where mom alleges and has documentation that child has, is being abused by dad. And yet, uh, I mean, I, uh, one of the stories that I've heard is dad said to the mom, well, you didn't say this before you filed for custody, so I think you're just saying that. And the fact that she had documentation that the child had been abused, well, we don't know who the, the child is really being abused by. You know, I, I mean, it's All that like nonsense, they, yeah. Yeah, they just don't trust anything a woman says and that they, in fact, punish her if she says something that, that they don't like. If I could – um, you have could... at the same time, yeah. you also have courts that have absolute power. Yeah, mm-hmm. way, way too much power. And it's, uh, I, I say judicial discretion is a dog whistle for sexism, racism, and just plain old good old American corruption. Uh, yeah. It's got to go. This uh, this uh, judicial description is nonsense. Now, Cindy is behind the idea of the best interest of the child, but the best interest of the child has been completely corrupted, and it's upside down. It's like we threw, you know, we fell through the rabbit mm-hmm. hole. And I, I'm saying that it's a very Trump-like uh, universe. You walk into a family law court, and uh, up is down left is right and so on uh, in other words the reporting mother is an abuser but the abuser is not the abuser but rather reporting abuse is a is is a mortal sin but committing the abuse well we'll just fluff it off and ignore it and besides she made it up anyway and i just want to add and i know damon wants to weigh in here and probably yeah. cindy but uh, uh one uh very creative mother uh, was able to get uh, at least, I think, the index or maybe the full manual uh, for judicial education training in California for all judges. And they come right out and say, you're not to trust women. You're not, they all got an axe to grind. Mm-hmm. And it, it, really? is, it, it is, yeah, it is so yeah, that's historically... That's, mis- one. that's not one from the 50s? That's, that's current? Yeah, but that that's not that doesn't go back to the 50s. There there is uh, this uh, brilliant uh, writer. Uh, I can't remember if she's a lawyer or sociologist. I know Cindy knows her, and uh, she. Uh, pardon me. Catherine McKinnon. Uh, no, not McKinnon. Uh, I have the book somewhere, and it's about the history of custody in America. And uh, there, you know, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh was the attitude that women were always, always subordinate to men. And if men determined she could have the baby, she could have the baby uh, under all kinds of circumstances. And if she didn't, they'd rip the baby out of her arms and that would be the last time she saw that her child. Uh, so it's ingrained, we are going against the grain by demanding equal rights for mothers and children. I mean, it's just unheard of in our country. Mm-hmm. And I think also, I'm, I'm 75, and I went to law school in the 70s, and I can tell you, 
the sexism in my law school at UCLA uh, was uh, was just unbelievable. I uh, there was um, a male law student overheard me. Um, I had a child, and I was saying, "Gee, I, I'm having a hard time getting childcare." And I was talking to another mother, and she said, "Me too." Guy, we weren't even talking to this guy. He popped in. He said, "That's why you don't belong in law school. You took a seat from a guy like me." And uh, so there was tremendous resentment, and I think uh, what I call the white male supremacy never got over it (laughs) and have been trying to take their revenge ever since, (laughs) especially against us women. And it's most reflective in uh, family court because, as Cindy would say, or Damon, uh, to the deepest part of our nature, since we were in our mother's womb, we were trained that we would bring forth children and be totally responsible for that child uh, even until, I say, until they're 50, (laughs) Uh, if you live that long to see your, yeah. Uh, And and to tell, uh, and then to tinker with the way these brutal judges do in family court, it's just unbelievable. It's almost, uh, you know, you see daily, you can, like I was down at the beach today, who's holding the baby, who's making sure that she's getting fed, it's inevitably is the mother. And not that the fathers aren't dedicated, but even the fathers, I'm sure, you know, it seems they give deference that, you know, there is that maternal child bond, which is daily being denied in family court. It's just hideous. Yeah, if I could uh, step in real fast. Damon, I'd like to jump in here and give us your take on this, since you see it from both Mm -hmm. two perspectives. Yeah, I think that... um, Pat was touching on something that's really important, especially to us at the Women's Coalition. It's a take that's a little bit different than what most protective parent organizations, which tend to speak in very gender neutral terms, like to talk about. Uh, um, But at the Women's Coalition, we really are concerned with the sort of primary bond between children and their mothers. But since we're pretty much all in agreement about that, I'm someone who feels it's uh, most productive to talk about things we disagree with. And I want to talk on this concept that the judges don't trust mothers because uh, there are lots of case studies that I could point you to, and my mom can point you to these too, where it, it would just be absurd to say that the judge doesn't trust the mother. There's either so much physical evidence or there's um, we have cases where the father will, in certain states, can just hand the judge an envelope of cash, call it a campaign donation, right in the middle of court, um, that this concept that the judges don't know what they're doing, that you can train these judges to say, oh, you know, if, if there's a child, a female child, and there's an accusation that she's being raped by the father, oh, and she has vaginal tearing, um, maybe, maybe the woman's not lying there. Because we have cases like that. And it, it just seems patently absurd in a lot of these cases to say the judges are getting it wrong because there tends to be so much evidence that the judges couldn't possibly just be making a mistake. It's clear that the judges know what they're doing to some extent. And it's important to note that because there are a lot of organizations that are focusing on this idea of better training judges. 
And the reason that we at the Women's Coalition aren't doing that, that we're focusing on child custody courts, is because, I mean, I've had just personally probably upwards of eight judges, and I was not protected by any of them. Um, I have a complicated story, but the idea that all of these judges just sort of simultaneously got this wrong, that they looked at the evidence, you know, I had corroborating witnesses, and they said this doesn't meet preponderance of evidence, because you have to remember in family court, a preponderance of the evidence is the burden of proof. And when you look at cases with really solid physical evidence, um, like drug tests that come back positive on the children that the children were drugged or vaginal tearing in young girls, the, the idea that that doesn't meet preponderance of evidence would never happen in any other court. And it's, correct. it's really important yeah. to note that in some of these cases, perhaps there are judges that are being poorly trained. But in a lot of these cases, the judges know exactly what they're doing. There's, they're either, doing. there's a monetary mm -hmm. incentive and there's also a uh, cultural incentive that my mom could probably speak um, significantly better to. But I, I do really think it's important to make the distinction that this is not going to be fixed by providing a better training manual. And that's, that's why correct. we're focusing on child custody yeah. courts. Uh, if I can weigh in, I have uh, uh, just share this, and, uh, and I'm sure Cindy wants to add something. I had, to me, the experience that demonstrates when a judge has the right training, what can happen. And I represented uh, Michelle Fotinos up in San, San Mateo. And for eight years, she was trying to at least gain access to her children. The battering father, a violent felon, had custody of her children. And I came in on the case in 2010, and in, uh, we had the good luck to get in front of San Mateo Don, uh, Judge Don Frankie. He was eight years a certified domestic violence counselor. He ran for election and got on the bench with that background and said, I want to do family law. He was doing the right thing by Michelle and her children. Uh, he kept custody uh, with the father, uh, but made it very clear that the father was going to toe the line and that he really didn't believe the children when they said they didn't want to uh, see their mother. And the tragedy is uh, because he was so effective uh, that they drove him off the case and he didn't stand up to them. He, he caved. And uh, Michelle's daughter, Rachel, left after Don Frankie got off the bench, uh, not off the bench, off our case. And all hell broke out. And poor Rachel mm -hmm. to this day is suffering tremendous PTSD because of what the court has put her through. They're not vindicating her. She is with her mother, but she's very seriously ill as a result of what the courts have done to her because she reported the abuse eight years of judges, of San Mateo judges over and over again kept custody with the father and they hated her because she was a whistleblower. She was also instrumental in getting him arrested. Uh, he was a felon and we went out and picketed uh, based on uh, Rachel's disclosures and they reluctantly picked him up and he had, he was a, a violent felon with 14 guns, two assault rifles, 20 high capacity magazines, 10,000 rounds of ammo all due to Michelle, the mother, and I picketing in San Francisco in front of the courthouse 
I lost my bar card. San Mateo's behind my losing my bar card, and they're after trying to put my client in prison, and Rachel is a mess. The guy walks free, and that's the way the, the courts operate. They're embarrassed. They're angry. Uh, they refuse to acknowledge this violent man, and they've been protecting him ever since to the detriment not only of my clients, but to the detriment of uh, the Bay Area residents because the guy walks free and his wife has guns. Yeah. So that's well, what we're facing. Yeah, it, it, and there are all, you know, there, there is no shortage of these egregious cases that we could be discussing. But I'm trying to kind of hone in because there are so many people, as you said, Damon, who are looking at, well, this must be an education problem. The judges just don't know. And what you're saying and what I hear your, you know, Cindy saying is that, no, it's not a matter of the judges don't know. It's a matter of the judges choose to disregard that. Uh, so mm -hmm. is that is that how you're you're saying this, Damon? Yeah, I, I think that there are quite possibly um, this tends to be a county by county issue. So there's definitely a pattern where there are an incredible number of places in the United States where children are being given to abusive fathers, um, and there, I'm sure there are some of those cases where the judge really is just making a mistake. But I think that what we need is a solution that's going to target both those cases, which I, in my opinion, this is possibly biased by my personal experience where it was really like, if you look at the things that the judges said on the record, it was quite clear that these judges were not just mistaken that they, uh, you know, they say things like, it, even if Damon is being abused by the father, it is the aim of this court to send him back to the father anyway. So these judges are clearly doing this intentionally. And um, that's why it's important to have a solution that's going to deal with both the judges that need more training and the judges that don't, which is why we're pushing for jury trials, because a jury of reasonable people when looking at the evidence in these cases will almost all of the time think that the abuse reaches the preponderance of evidence burden. In right. fact, in yeah. California, we have criminal codes, right? So for beyond a reasonable doubt, these are criminal codes that say that if even if there's no um, physical evidence, just the testimony of a sexual assault victim can be enough if the testimony is considered um, Credible, credible to yeah. convict beyond a reasonable doubt. We have those codes, criminal codes in California. And be, the idea that a credible allegation of abuse by a child with, in my case, corroborating witnesses and other cases, solid physical evidence would not reach what is really a very low burden, which is preponderance of evidence. Uh, juries would never stand for that. And so that's why we're really focusing on advocating for jury trials to, advo uh, to adjudicate this is because they aren't going to come in with the biases that judges are, and they're not going to come in with the uh, corruption that judges are, and they're not going to come in with this cronyistic idea of kickbacks. They're, all of those problems are going to be solved by a transition to a jury trial that can be done in a short period of time uh, and protect kids. 
Then let me interrupt here because that brings to mind you had mentioned that you know that these things need to be decided. The the status or standard is a preponderance of evidence, which which means basically mm-hmm. you've got more stuff that says this is happening than anything that makes you think it's not. Am I saying that correctly? Well, exactly. It, yeah, uh, yeah. It's actually well. The jury instruction is is uh, that it's more likely true than not. Uh, that what the plaintiff is alleging is true. And what most lawyers do in front of the jury is say, all we need is 50% plus 0.1 to prevail. Emphasize 50% plus a 0.1. In other words, uh, just tiny, tiny bit over 50% and you prevail. And uh, Damon's absolutely right that uh, it, it, that certainly by preponderance, it's the lower standard. You have the preponderance of evidence and you have clear and convincing evidence and then guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. I frankly think that a lot of the evidence that I've presented in uh, sex abuse cases would even meet guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. I, I, I dream of getting in front of a jury with the evidence and you can't do it. You can't do it. Mm. The federal judges are throwing out these cases. They won't let me go to jury trial because they know I'll win big and and win uh, millions of dollars, and then I'll open up the floodgate of litigation, and there you have it. But anyway. So then that brings me back to another question. Is It, it makes sense to me that if you can plead your case before a panel of your peers, that it would be probably, probably a different result than just pleading your case before a judge. However, is that a practical solution? I mean, isn't that going to really overburden the system? I mean, what what does that mean from a practical standpoint? We have ideal, but then we have practical. Mm-hmm. Pat, can you? Yeah, I. This is oh, actually uh, one of my favorite questions. Um, Pat can oh, take over ahead. this if she likes, but I, I just this is. Um, I, I love yeah. thinking about practicality <laughs> and politics. So this is a question that I've really spent a lot of time looking into. Um, so what you have to think about generally when we speak to legislators, um, as the women's coalition, when we lobby them, when we sit down and have discussions with them, one of the things that we run into is this concept of, isn't that going to cost money to, you know, have all this, all these juries. And there's sort of two reasons why that argument doesn't hold any water. The first reason is that the way that current custody courts work is that they drag on cases. My case went on for a full decade. And uh, just like all of these uh, things we were talking about earlier with the psychologists and the minors councils and all of these third parties, all of them are being subsidized in part by the state. Uh, not, maybe not all of them. I could be wrong about that particular fact. But in general, there's huge amounts of money being put in, in by the state for decades-long court battles that would not be the case if you had one jury trial that happens within a reasonable time frame after the disclosure of abuse, and then the case no longer has to be litigated for the next 10 years. So that's the first, like, just right on the face way of saving money is that the cases are going to take a lot less time. The second way that I also like to talk about is the concept of hidden costs which um, I can send you the information or my mom can send you the information for uh, this Kaiser study that was being done about hidden costs. And what it's finding is that the way the current system works is like Pat was saying about her client earlier, 
children come out of this, even when they're able to go back to their mom, they come out of it oftentimes with severe PTSD. I had a lot of PTSD. Uh, I still deal with some psychological symptoms, and I'm essentially the best case scenario. I was able to recover psychologically for the most part. Uh, I was able to get back with my mom, and even I still have psychological issues. And it turns out that the cost to society of those psychological issues in its citizens is incredibly high. It's going to be more homelessness, which leads to more uh, emergency room visits that the state has to pay for, which can be incredibly expensive, and more welfare spending on people who are on children who were abused, who were psychologically damaged, who are not able to uh, be productive members of society anymore. The cost to society is just hugely outsized compared to the relatively minor cost of a one-time jury trial. So that's actually one of my favorite questions because to me it's such a slam dunk that the practicality of this is actually one of the best pieces of having the jury trial is that it saves the state in the long run huge, huge, huge sums of money. If, yeah, if you're, uh, I find it repugnant to even talk about money when it comes to protection of children. But one of the things with this jury trial that Cindy and I have built into the code is that uh, we expect that the jury trial will occur within one year. And then the goal within that one year time that you're in court is to significantly reduce the judicial discretion of the judge. The other thing I want to say, and, and Damon brought it up, and Cindy and I have discussed it at length, if the, parents, uh, if the parents run out of money, and a lot of times the wealthier parent tends to be the father, will hide his income and they'll just wink and so on. I, uh, that's a big issue with minors' counsel. Minors' counsel, uh, court-appointed therapists, court-appointed visitation people, um, I'm trying to think of the other, uh, what they pass on, uh, is that you're dealing with what's called a Title VI situation in which the federal government hands money uh, under all, oh, Heather, under all kinds of, of statutes. You have more child abuse funding that goes on, handed by the feds over to the state. The state doles it out to the county and the courts. It is the biggest racket. They're using that money uh, to take uh, children away from the good enough parent and hand it over to, uh, to the child. So in addition to the hidden costs, that uh, Damon talks about, and I don't know if you've seen that study, I think it was like 17,000 people that Kaiser looked at because they kept having these people develop uh, illnesses that are not associated with child abuse, and they found inevitably that people, for example, obesity, um, uh, diabetes, other, you know, uh, kind of straight-up physical illnesses that you don't associate with child yeah, the ACEs study. Uh, oh, I'm glad. Yeah, so you're familiar with that. On the show. Uh, we had Dr. Brady yeah. on the show. And he didn't oh, really great. Um, talk a lot about how that related to child custody cases. But maybe that was my doing. I should have asked, been more specific about the questions I asked, perhaps. Well, it, it links in because if you keep handing the child over to the abuser, that uh, abused child grows up to, uh, as uh, Rachel is a great example, she is having a very, very difficult in adulthood. She's turning 22 shortly and having a horrible, horrible time. But part of it is that she wasn't vindicated. 
by the courts. She was attacked. She was insulted, even though she was the one that led the deputies to the location where uh, her father had hidden the guns because he made her hide the guns uh, with her brother. Now, uh, uh, so, and, and just going back, we were talking about judges and their intentionality. I totally agree with Damon and Cindy that it is more intentional than simply uh, not being educated enough to comply with the statutes on um, ensuring a criminal uh, restraining order when a guy was um, in the criminal courts for domestic violence. And so even if judges try to do the right thing, they will be quashed. Salcedo's a good example. I had an experience in child support where the judge was doing the right thing. Uh, I could draw a parallel here to the Me yeah. Too movement. I think it would help. Um, women are not being disbelieved. They are being discredited. In other words, they're being called liars. Just like in the Me Too movement, women, women have come forward or they don't come forward because they know that they are going to be called a liar. So they are being discredited and silenced, and that's what's going on. And then that speaks to the core cause of this whole thing. Uh, I think you're making a good point, you know, about the being, women being discredited and silenced. Uh, I have heard of advisors and advocates who are telling women, you know, if your child has experienced abuse by the father, keep your mouth shut. Because if you bring that up, you can be punished and the child will end up having to go live with this person because of, of you being punished. I think that's just such a sad, sad thing. It's, it's a very sad state of affairs. Who's winning in both ways? If the mom shuts up and doesn't come forward because she's afraid to lose, she's going to lose custody, the man wins. If she comes forward yeah. and then she, and she is discredited, the man okay. wins. So, this, so Damon, mm-hmm. I want to go to you, um, mainly because I'm having a hard time hearing your mom. But I want to go to you, and what can, if other people are experiencing this kind of outrage, if other people have had these, I mean, I talk to women all the time, um, you know, what can I do, what can I do, I'm desperate, I'm frantic, I'm, you know, and I, there are very few options, there are very few referrals that I can give to a woman who's going through this, other than you're not alone. What do mm. you do when, you know, every time you hear about one of these these cases, one of these situations, what what do you do? What do you recommend? What what can we do, even if we're not impacted by this directly? What can we do to help rectify this, this situation? So in terms of individual cases, uh, I don't want to swear on here, but it's uh, it's a, it's a shoot of some sort. Um, it's just uh, really a, a bad situation to be in. And I always hesitate to try and give advice for individual cases because I don't have the expertise. Um, I'm really more on the public policy side. What I did to um, protect myself was to marry a, a prostitute and that just legally emancipated me. So I, I was never able to be successful within the court system. So I, I actually don't really have any experience at winning court cases. I was turned down by every judge I went to see, no matter which county, no matter which court. Um, I tried probably eight judges or so, emancipation judges, restraining order judges, three or three family court judges, 
and I was never able to win. In terms of the larger issue, um, the thing that I would say is that people could do to support the wider issue would be sort of to check in with the Women's Coalition, because I think that we as an organization are the only organization that I know of that's pushing a solution to this problem, the child custody courts putting these things in front of a jury, limiting the amount of judicial discretion that's actually going to make a difference. So what we're trying to do is create a coalition of support where we're able to pass laws that are actually going to fix the problem. There are a lot of organizations out there, a lot of protective parent organizations. I'm sure you've talked to a lot of them. And while supporting them can be fine, uh, they can also divert attention from initiatives that are actually going to fix the problem. The more time we spend talking about training judges, the less time we're going to be spending talking about things that are going to fix the problem in cases where it really is this corruption, where it really is systematized, where the judge is not making a mistake and the judge knows exactly what they're doing. Um, so I would just sort of say the Women's Coalition byline there. I hate to be a, a puppet of the organization, but I, I really believe that we're one of the only organizations I know of that's tackling this with a solution that's actually going to mean something and as much support as we can get, the more likely it is that we're going to be able to put those solutions into place. Uh, another, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. If I can ask a question, Pat. I thought it's only in criminal cases where you have a right to a jury trial. Is that the way it is? Uh, no, actually under, uh, and, and Cindy started out, the Seventh Amendment says that you have a right to jury trial uh, in all cases where it used to be $10 was at stake or something like that. Um, and uh, now the Sixth, um, let's see, I think it's the Sixth Amendment guarantees a right of jury trial in criminal cases, I believe. But the Seventh Amendment uh, cases where uh, I guess now arguably it would be, I'd have to look up the amount of money that would be at stake. And so the argument is if you know, if you put a dollar amount, certainly uh, for children, it would be priceless, right? And so you right. should automatically be entitled to a jury trial. There's no reason why you can't have a right to jury trial except that it uh, grew by uh, this paternalistic, uh, patriarchal approach to family law. Well, remember, the domestic sphere never was included in Roman uh, law, uh, I, I don't know about Judeo law, but it was never, it was, uh, here was the private sphere and whatever went on there, it was like Las Vegas, whatever goes on there stays there. And whereas you could be executed for killing somebody at a bar, another man, if you killed your wife, your slave, or your child, um, and you were at a, a, at a certain noble level and under Roman law, nothing could happen to you. It's only recently that the do domestic sphere got any consideration, and it was under a do-gooder concept, very paternalistic concept about uh, women and children. And that's how it moved in. And so they said, oh, we can't subject children and, and women. They couldn't take it. 
uh, to a jury trial and, oh, we need to slam the door of juvenile court. Uh, the children need privacy. Bull. It's to cover up their corruption, their tyranny, and uh, the way the system is run, which is very, very authoritarian, anti-democratic, and certainly anti-parent and anti-child. So it, it just ha you know, it just came in that way because of the kinds of people who were running the legal system. And you have to remember, we uh, come out of the common law and the English traditions in what was it, 19th century, Blackstone, uh, I think it was Blackstone and his commentaries held that, uh, as late as the 19th century, I believe, uh, la femme couverte, that the wife is covered by her husband and uh, she disappears. And uh, that concept uh, has you know, continued into the 20th and the 21st century. It's very, very hard to give up that power that men have always held over women and children. And that's what we're confronted with. There's no reason why we can't have a jury trial. And in terms of practicality today, I have people calling me all the time and we work out kind of you know, strategy, for example, bringing an ADA advocate. Uh, Melissa uh, is uh, Barnett is very, very experienced. She knows the law, and that well, Dr. Uh, gives program, yeah, uh, you know, equal access advocates through John Jay University. So, yeah, you know, people are yeah. looking at different solutions, and I think uh, quite frankly, yeah. the ADA solution sounds great to me. I really appreciate what you're saying about, you know, the whole system has to be changed here, and we have to recognize that whether it's out of mean-spiritedness or whatever, for whatever reason, we do have our yeah. prejudices, do have our... Right. Yeah, we do have our ways of, of looking at things, and that judges are not exempt from that. And it has been an old boy network for centuries. So the fact that in the last 30 years more women have become judges, I, I haven't seen any anything. I have not seen anything that shows that women no. judges are changing this trend. I, I just haven't seen it, and we've done a couple Not at all. That, so. They're sometimes the worst. You've got this Sherry Horner, this Silbar down yep. in Orange County. Yeah, they're 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 eager to prove that they're more patriarchal than the men, and but my our position, Cindy Damon, and my position is there's no use in going and talking to the stone wall. I've done it for 41 years uh, for people uh, non uh, you know people of color and for women. What we have to do is an end run, and it's to change the institutions, and it's to set up a custody code a child custody code, nothing else, uh, you know, for, maybe child support can be thrown in, but nothing else. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, Matt, but... I think I'm looking at our clock right now, Pat, and I'm going, geez, I'm going to have oh. to cut you off here. But I yeah. think that, uh, Damon, can you give the website um, for where people can learn more about the Women's Coalition? The website um, would probably just be what you had mentioned at the top of the hour, which is the women's co uh, the women's coalition international dot org. I specifically would probably point people to uh, there's a little tab there um, that says research. They can find the links to all of the things that we're talking about today. Um, my mom has written some fantastic articles that really lay out 
the issues really well and really clearly and also have cited all of the research within those articles. Okay. So I'd specifically point to those okay. articles Thank and that research. Thank you so research. much, Damon. I appreciate it. And again, sorry to cut you off, but I'm looking at our clock and we're just going to stop recording mm -hmm. here in a few seconds. So I want to make sure that mm -hmm. Women's Coalition International um, and thank you so much. I hope that, you know, in a, in a while we'll have better news about this and you people will all come back on my show saying, look what we did. Look at how we changed the system. Thank you, Heather. <laughs> thank you for the work that you're doing. And thank you for listening to Three Women, Three Ways.